All right, once again, this is Ken Pretty with Introduction to Transitional Ministry. So, I have to do that for uh, the person that has to edit this. Oh, that's right. You know, they need to know what tape they're listening to. Good luck with that, that's all I can say. <laughs> all right, after a walk down memory lane, we'll, we'll return to, uh, to our material here. Look on page seven. Let's go ahead and, and knock some of these things out. You know, the why. That, that early material is really good for helping to establish a, a rationale. Uh, and this kind of builds on that. What are some of the things uh, that a transitional ministry will do? You'll see them there on page 7. Uh, this comes from Lauren Mead with the Alban Institute. Um, first of all, coming to terms with history. Let's see if we got this uh, Alban Institute. Da, 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 da. Here we go. Coming to terms with the history of the church. Um, you know, history is a funny thing. On, on one hand, you have people that are drawn to the past. So in a sense, that can be coming to terms. But also... Uh, Sometimes when, when you're transitioning in a uh, negative environment, you know, you've got a, you've got a church that's been in long-term plateau or de decline. Um, there is a sense that, it's, that all the news is going to be bad news. That can be very uh, demoralizing. So I always say part of coming to terms with history from my standpoint is Let's, let's realize that however we, we might have struggled here and there, maybe we're struggling now, but there have been moments in the history of this church when God did something really special that's noteworthy. So let's, let's never lose sight of that. Let's, let's, keep, let's keep the positive in there along with the negative. Discovering a new identity. Uh, lots of churches really don't have an identity, uh, they have perhaps you uh, uh, you might think of it as a as a general identity. You know, we just do church. We have church programs like every other church has programs. We have worship services. Maybe we have a personality because of our our particular senior pastor or something of that sort. But church to church to church to church, you know, we don't we don't have those significant distinctives. So the idea of transition is that it's a period of time when you really could discover a new identity or perhaps discover any identity, you know, a, a clear identity. Uh, facilitating shifts of power. When a pastor steps down, transitional period begins there can be a little bit of a no man's land there in terms of authority. Who's in charge? Where does the power lie? Now, power oftentimes can be viewed as something that people, let's say, uh, negatively wield. But, you know, power can be a good thing in the church, especially if it's the power of God. So what we're thinking about with shifts of power, we need to figure out where, where are we going to cast anchor? What's going to be the important thing? What are we going to hold as the priority? And when you're in transition, there can be a bit of a, 
of a vacuum in terms of power. Who's in charge? Not sure who's in charge. I thought you were going to take care of that. You know, these kinds of things. Well, one thing that a transitional pastor can do is step in and establish, you know, some order and some clarity, uh, some mechanics while the church is uh, moving forward. Rethinking denominational ties. Um, especially in a denomination like the EPC that does have such terrific autonomy at the local level. Uh, there are many churches that aren't overly participatory when it comes to presbytery. You know, they're not participating on the committees. They're only attending a minimum amount of times. They don't really see the value. But Presbytery can be of great value to a transitioning church. So it's a good time for uh, denominational ties and connectionalism to actually be connectional. So good time for that. Uh, building commitment to new leadership and a new future. Um, Again, churches have a tendency to get caught up in what I'm just going to call the status quo. We, we roll one year into another year into another year. They all kind of look the same. So when you have these, these breaks in the action, such as a transitional period, you've got an ap opportunity to revisit um, where we headed, who's going to be leading the way, and we can, we can re-up our commitment to making those things happen. Now, the next couple of pages spell that out a little bit more. But I want you to go over to page 10, and we'll look at these uh, advantages, 10 advantages of engaging a skilled transitional pastor. Clarity. All right, fresh eyes to see clearly. Fresh eyes. You know, Familiarity breeds contempt, I think is how the expression goes. Well, I think that can be true in the church. We just get locked into comfortable, familiar surroundings, and we don't recognize uh, how this might look to the uninitiated. So when fresh eyes come in, there's an opportunity to, to reset. You know, years ago, many years ago, I was in the music business and uh, I owned a recording studio for a while. And, uh, you know, in the recording world, there's the performance itself that you record, but then there is mixing uh, when you're actually preparing the master, master uh, tapes or digital, whatever they call them these days. They were reel to reel when I was doing it. Uh, but there would come a point at which you had been listening for so long you couldn't hear it anymore. You know, you, it would get muddy. And so what they would always do is they, they'd call for a break and bring in a new engineer that hadn't been listening. And we called it, we called it fresh ears. We need some fresh ears in here. Somebody that hasn't been listening to this for the last four days incessantly. You know, because they just, it, it, it's different. Kind of like proofreading. Pardon? Kind of like proofreading. Yeah, yeah, it really is. You know, it's like when you get the same person proofreading it twice, they make the same mistake twice. 
Yeah, it's funny how the, the eye and the mind plays tricks. All right, secondly, fresh leadership to clarify roles. Uh, this kind of gets back to that idea of, of the, the, the changing of, of leadership. It's like, who's doing what? If it, chances are, it, the roles weren't clear before. And so in a lot of churches, the way it works is kind of like with the, with the pastor, it's the buck stops here kind of mentality. So when all else fails, dump it on the pastor's desk. Well, what if there's no pastor? <laughs> you know, then what? Well, a, a new pastor coming in can help to redefine those roles. Stability. Uh, sometimes in transition, there can be chaos. Well, part of stability, first of all, consistency in the pulpit is a good thing. Um, this is, of course, assuming that whatever is consistently in the pulpit is uh, on target and substantive and whatnot. But the thing is, uh, what tends to happen when you're doing this rotating guest speaker thing is you you just get this smorgasbord of whatever perspective that speaker happened to have about this that or the other thing or you get them sort of showcasing their most favorite sermon you know and whereas they might be engaging that might be worthwhile etc cetera, etc cetera, it's not building a, a, a foundation and what you really want, if you're going to be using uh, a time of transition to promote a more missional agenda, you want that missional message being pounded week after week after week in the pulpit. Re-equipping the session as shepherds. You know, that's, that's an interesting phrase because... I'm not absolutely convinced that sessions have ever been equipped as, as shepherds. But anyway, I get the idea. It's, it's a good time to reset everything. You know, you've got, you've got an excuse in a way to sort of clear the deck, turn the page, you know, pick a, pick a metaphor and start all over. My observation is that most sessions do not truly function as biblical elders. They function as organizational managers. And whereas that's understandable on a human level, it's not what God intended. It's not biblical. So whatever we can do to get session being session, or elders being elders more appropriately, uh, the better. All right, what else? Improvement. Discover God's vision for the church. Um, I'm partial to the Great Commission as an expression of vision. I think churches spent, that do embrace the idea of, of articulating vision spend an awful lot of time wordsmithing and not really getting to real vision. Most vision statements I read remind me more of like statements of faith or doctrinal statements than they do statements of vision. So it's a good time to dial the church into the idea of capturing what, what God has for us. I like to frame it as saying God has a vision for every church 
to be a church that goes and makes disciples. But specifically, what's that going to look like in the context of our church? Uh, addressing systemic dysfunction and sin. <laughs> this just kind of harkens back to our discussion earlier about the sin in the camp issue. This is one of those principles that I sort of stumbled into. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't wise enough to know that it was there until church after church after church I was working with that was in decline. Something bubbled up in the conversation that was some kind of sin issue. Like I said, it can either be an event of sin or it can be a pervasive systemic sin. Uh, you know, like you've got, a, you've got a small church that's got significant money in the bank through an endowment or some sort. And they won't touch it because they see it as the, the life source. But it's not their money. It's God's money. You know, there comes a point at which your effort for self-preservation has crossed the line into being self-service instead of God's service. So those kind of things. But, you know, after so many times of seeing some kind of sin issue bubble to the surface, I started asking about those issues. And, oh man, that was like floodgates time. So the issue is not so much the sin itself. The issue is residue. Is there residue from that sinful occurrence? Uh, is there sort of a cloud hovering over the ministry in some way because there was some breach that has never been, been addressed? You know, people tend to like to just brush those things aside and not admit that they're there. But, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a mistake. Diffusing negative emotions before the new pastor comes. That's one great service that the transitional pastor can do is try to fix a few things. You know, it's a, it's a delicate thing to, to handle, but one of the advantages of being a transitional pastor is you know you're not going to stay long term. And there are certain advantages to that. Because, you know, it, it gives you perhaps license to just be a little more direct, a little more uh, candid in how you handle things, as opposed to, I've got to be thinking through how this could affect my relationship with that elder five years from now. You know, uh, there are things that the... It's, it's almost like the difference between, say, the surgeon and the person who does the, the long-term care. You know, the transitional pas pastor can play a little bit more of a surgical role, if that makes sense. All right, a couple more of these. Progress. Discern the gifts and experiences needed for a pastor. Uh, you know, we have a variety of tools that can help a church determine what kind of pastor they really need 
to move them forward in the kind of ministry they feel called to be. You know, making those matches is important. Now, one thing to keep in mind is uh, if God, let's put it this way. God knows perfectly well what he would like to accomplish through a particular church. God knows who he wants to call to pastor that church. And so we're, we're all trusting God for the component parts of this transaction to come together. Uh, so, you know, God is not going to lead the church down one path in terms of vision and then lead them to call a pastor that doesn't fit that on the other. You know, all of this, all of this works together. There's a logic to it. Allows the pastoral search team the time to be thorough. That's a huge one. There are times when the search committee, they just want a live body in the pulpit. And they want it to happen as quickly as possible. And that, that can be disastrous. Another thing that I saw, I, I saw this happen when I left the church in Phoenix. Um, it's not that our church really was in a hurry to replace me, but our district superintendent had decided who he thought should be my successor. And uh, so he, he more or less guided our search team in, toward the selection of this person. And it was a horrendous mismatch. But it turns out our district superintendent had a different vision for what he thought our church was about and where it should go in the future. And so he tried to bring someone in that he thought would make that happen. But it was, it was like just so, so wrong for our congregation. And unfortunately, uh, over a period of about 10 months, probably about 75% of our membership left. Eventually, this guy left the church and, and left ministry. It was just a, a total mismatch, not just for, say, ministry philosophy reasons, but character issues and all kinds of stuff. You know, the first, the first thing this guy did, he, he, he was an associate at a very large church in California. And our district superintendent wanted our church to be like that church. So they thought, well, here's a guy. He's been an associate at a church of 3,000. So, you know, this church that Ken has been pastoring has grown up to 350. Uh, this guy ought to be able to come in and, you know, scale up to that, that mega church size. So the first weekend that this fella is on board, he brings a team over from his former church to do an evaluation of our church. And they ripped it to shreds. But see, they were looking through a completely different lens. Like, they don't do this, they don't do that. And it's like, yeah, that's because 
we're this kind of church. We're not that kind of church. You know, we're not trying to be that. We're not doing a bad job at being that. We're doing a really good job at being this. <laughs> you know, and it, it, it offended everybody. It made everybody angry. And uh, this gentleman, every time he'd get mad about something, he'd threaten to resign. And uh, then everybody would kind of back down and he'd get his way, kind of bully you know, not bully pulpit, more like bully session, you know. Well, after 10 months of this, he pulled that stunt one too many times. And in a, in a meeting of the elder board, he started complaining about this or that. And, and he said something like, uh, you know, if these people can't come around, maybe I should just resign. And the chairman of the board said, we accept your resignation. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, this was heartbreaking for me, but at the same time, what they had left was so far ahead of where we started with 13 people in no building. And they brought in a really great guy eventually and kind of rebuilt. So, you know, church biz, what can you say? <laughs> people are people are people are people. Prepare the congregation to receive the new pastor well. Uh, this is a great service uh, that you can provide. All right. Um, let's move over to... All right. Resistance. Page 12. What are some of the things that cause people to resist using a transitional pastor. One thing is congregational pride. Uh, we don't need an outsider. We can handle this ourselves. We've got good people on a search team. We don't need you. Especially if there is any kind of... Uh, uh, well, the, the mechanism pretty much for securing a transitional pastor is working through presbytery. Well, if you don't trust Presbytery uh, or you just have a non-existent relationship with Presbytery, then uh, it's hard for a congregation to, in a sense, submit to that, you know, sit under that kind of leadership. Uh, secondly, congregational fear. Uh, we don't want to let this thing too far out of our hands because something might happen. Uh, congregational distrust, leadership trauma, PTSD. Uh, there's a couple of, of subsets to this that, that Bob Stoffer always shares. Um, and, you know, I think the question, even when I was hearing Bob share about this kind of thing over, over the last year and a half, I always kind of wonder, said, well, I thought we were talking about transitional pastoring. Why all this talk about decline? Why all this talk about trauma, crisis? But again, statistically, the vast majority of churches are in long-term plateau or decline. So there is definitely an overlay between serving in a transitional role and finding that role being played out in a church that's in long-term plateau or decline. And so things like leadership trauma uh, 
you know, it is a traumatic experience. Just losing a pastor can be traumatic. Now, best case scenario, we've got a pastor that had a good long run that was a very healthy thing. It was time for that pastor to step down or retire or whatever, and they, they had a celebration and a party, and everybody felt great about it. But even when that happens, people are still losing their pastor. Okay, so even in the best of circumstances, there can be a little trauma associated with that. And there's, there's umpteen scenarios where it's not so peaceful as that. But some of the things uh, that, that Bob always points out is that people in trauma experience these four things. One is time dilation. Okay, they, they don't have a clear sense of time. It's distorted. Uh, secondly, auditory exclusion. People don't listen, they don't hear, they don't remember. You know, the, you can communicate, 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 and somebody says, I've never heard that. Okay, so don't be surprised. Uh, third is the loss of what, they, what they're calling fine motor skills. But what it boils down to is when there's tension, people become less, less patient. Uh, they're more edgy. And finally, tunnel vision. Uh, they get fixated on one thing. Like the one thing we're fixated on is we, uh, we need a new pastor, no matter what. That's the, that's the solution. You know, the thing is, once you secure a new pastor, you are certainly planning on that new pastor being a long-term new pastor. You know, a transitional pastorate is probably going to be more in the 18-month to two-year run. But to bring in, nothing to me is worse than bringing in the new pastor and very soon thereafter realizing this is the wrong person. You know, so jumping, jumping too soon, making a hasty decision, grabbing the first live body that has a resume that looks pretty good. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just full of danger. All right, and then finally, the idol of pragmatism. That again, you know, some of the things we run into, folks will resist we don't want a transitional pastor because, you know, now that we don't have a pastor, we're saving a lot of money. You know, every, every month, instead of paying the pastor, we're putting that money in the bank. So can't we just survive with pulpit supply with a, a light honorarium every week and, uh, you know, stockpile a little change here? You know, or the other brand of pragmatism which says, no, we just need a new pastor. We need a, need a new pastor now. So, hey, there's, there's people out there. There's people graduating from seminary every day. One thing that, that you see for the churches that are particularly super cost conscious, we want to keep the price down, they'll look for the recent seminary grad or they'll look for the retired pastor to pull back into pulpit supply service. You know, I see that a lot. Well, the young pastor, 
probably doesn't have the seasoning to handle this kind of transition stuff very well. And the coming out of retirement pastor, um, particularly if, if it's a limited job description, probably doesn't have the drive, the energy. I mean, there's a reason that people retire. You know, when people retire, they retire to, to, to kick back. You know, it's not a, you know, in, you don't re retire to up the intensity of your life as a rule, <laughs> you know. So, all these things mitigate against people wanting a transitional pastor. There's more information about this on 13. Um, there are a couple of, uh, let's see. There's a couple of, of case studies here. A couple of folk, Mount Vernon EPC and uh, Hickory United EPC. These are a couple of churches in the Alleghenies that have, you know, they're kind of on the back side now of having utilized a, uh, a transitional pastor. So there's some good stuff to be gained by checking that out. Alrighty, let me, uh, I want to make sure you get your blanks filled in here before the day's out. Um, if you look over on 18, just uh, again a mention of the, the who of transitional ministry. Um, there's this transitional ministry triangle. You've got the transitional church, you've got the transitional pastor, and you've got the presbytery. Uh, those three working together. Under church, there's the session, the staff, the leaders, the congregation. And if you're using the, the Go Center material, there's probably a vision team uh, on board that uh, should be in the mix. Several presbytery committees that are relevant uh, this, the CDC or in Presbyterian East, you have a CDT, right? Is that what they call it? Yeah. Whoever, whoever is responsible for this kind of ministry, of course, the ministerial committee is always involved because ministerial has to have a say both in the uh, qualifications of the transitional pastor as well as the, the, uh, the terms of call of a new pastor. And then you've got the pastor himself, herself. Okay, in looking at qualifications, wait a minute, we're missing, uh, I'm missing some pages here. Alright, on page 19, who's qualified? Those four slots at the beginning, number one under biblical leadership is the character of a leader, the competency of a leader, the convictions of a leader, the call of a leader. And I would say that that's also relevant in terms of the permanent pastor you're going to call. But we want in this transitional pastor, we need a person of character, we need a person of competency, and to some degree Competency is a, can be learned. Um, we're not talking about somebody that's just naturally gifted necessarily, but somebody who's, who's got some training. Uh, 
convictions, we want to make sure that we're on the same page. And I think in the EPC, uh, we are we are pretty safe in this category. You know, uh, I think the EPC across the boards, Presbytery to Presbytery, does a pretty good job of ensuring that, uh, particularly on a theological level, we're on the same page. You know, if you're not, you, you either find out and, and withdraw or you're, you're not voted in. You know, it kind of boils down to that. The call of a leader, uh, that's, that's a little more subjective, let's say. But uh, we do want people to, to feel like, hey, I'm in this because God's called me to this. Not just I was looking for a job and this one was open, you know. Uh, under self-assessment tools, that's, a, that's just a listing here of some of those tools. Now, um, let me check one thing. This one that says uh, assessing your, what's it called? Assessing your restoration potential. Yeah. That is a tool that uh, I want to give you, but all the copies are in the other room. So we'll make sure we take care of that when we break up today. Unfortunately, we don't have that in, in a digital format. It's a, it's a tool that Bob Hopper had gotten permission to use from another source, and all we have is a master hard copy. <laughs> yeah, so I'll get you that. Um, move over to page 20. <clears throat> Internal challenges to transitional pastor ministry. Now, what, what we're referring to here, we're referring to the pastor personally, inside the transitional pastor. What are internal challenges? First one could be the challenge of pride. Like, I can do this. There's nothing wrong with having some confidence, but it's very important that that confidence is placed in more in God's ability to use us than our ability to pull it off on our own. So that can be a pride issue. Uh, the challenge of staying safe. Uh, that's the challenge of um, I don't want to risk too much. I, I, I just don't want to rock the boat. Let's be careful here. The challenge of fear. Um, do I, the flip side of pride in a way uh, I, I might be a bit intimidated by the job. The challenge of control. Uh, I'm, I want to be absolutely in control. I'm the pastor. Everything's got to go through me. Uh, then there's the challenge of personal guilt and shame. Uh, you know, maybe I am not the one. Uh, maybe if they really knew me the way I know me, they would have never brought me in. Okay. Now, external challenges uh, that the transitional pastor might be facing. Um, first of all, the challenge of untrained lay leadership. This really has to do with 
just not being on the same page. If you're coming in as a, as a transitional pastor and you've been through training such as this and you're focusing on a, a, like a Great Commission approach to ministry, <coughs> but lay, lay leaders haven't been through these same experiences. They're coming at it more from a conventional how do we manage the church? How do we keep our congregation happy? How do we make sure we don't lose any members during this transitional period? You know, the, their agenda is completely different. And that can be a problem. Challenges of hostile lay leadership. Uh, what? Huh? Hostile. Oh, hostile. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of scenario like uh, you've got that one leader that doesn't appreciate the fact that Presbytery made this recommendation. Yeah, you know, last time I dealt with Presbytery back in 1987, you know, uh, you can run into that kind of thing. Uh, challenge of divided lay leadership. The leadership itself is not on the same page with each other. Uh, they see very different routes. I had a situation not long ago where <laughs> I had a pastor, senior pastor of a, you know, 300 or so size church. Uh, had been a much larger church in the past. But, you know, a lot of times as churches decline, they, uh, they hold on to the the larger structures that they've always had. And they, they, oftentimes they're carrying extra weight on staff, that kind of thing, holdovers from a previous time. Well, this particular pastor, when he contacted me, what he presented to me was, um, you know, I'm 62 years old and I'm planning to retire at 65. Um, and it would make sense, personally, for me to stay here at this church through that three years and retire. However, um, I, I want to leave the church in really good hands. I want to leave the church, you know, positively moving forward. And I'm not completely certain that I'm the right person to to set the church up in that way for a successor. So I'd like for you to come in and help me determine if I should stay, maybe maybe overlap with my successor for a season, or if I should perhaps step down now and allow the church to move on. He said, I'm not sure what I'd do with myself. But, you know, I'm willing to take that step if that's what's best for the church. Well, to make a really long story short, somewhat shorter, my determination was he was absolutely not the right person. He needed to get out of the way faster the better. But it turns out that that's not even what he really wanted. He wanted to leverage me somehow to recommend the firing of his associate. <laughs> okay? He wanted his associate fired 
And here's how he was going to go about this. He was trying to manipulate me into recommending that they that his successor be selected and brought on staff to overlap with his like last 18 months but see the church couldn't afford to do that they would have had to make headroom in their payroll and the only way to have done that would have been to let the associate that they had go but I happened to discover down the line that's really what he wanted is he wanted that person out so he was trying to build a case for why it would be strategically advantageous to bring in a his replacement before the fact and uh, it's a shame that this person will need to step down but it's necessary well of course once that came to light it, it even, it screamed at me that he was not the right person, you know. But meanwhile, I discovered that among session, there's like four different versions of what, of what they think should happen. So it's almost like everything on this list they had going at once. You know, they had a divided leadership, just... All kinds of stuff. And, you know, what I always do is I always say, look, the place we need to start is why are we here? What is the purpose of the church? And in my mind, that always gets us to talking about the Great Commission. And once you are clear on what your purpose is, then the other things tend to fall in line. But in this case, what we had was scheming pastor uh, a very toxic relationship between pastor and associate pastor coupled with at least four very different points of view among leaders ranging from um, I'm sick of all this infighting we ought to get rid of all of them to the other extreme of we can't do anything that hurts anybody's feelings. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so what's happened? This is now this is now like four years later. That pastor is now like sixty-six or sixty-seven. He's still there. The associate is still there, and the church continues its nosedive. <laughs> they call me about every three or four years to do you know, another training session and another, what do you think, Ken? And I tell them, and they don't listen to any of it, and we go back to business as usual till the next round. It's crazy. All right, where were we? All right, further on, uh, all right, challenge of congregational pride. That's a similar thing. Uh, you know, I, I run into churches that, they, they bought into whatever their identity was in their heyday. That's where their self-perception lies. You know, and you run into these churches that say in 1975, they were like the cool church in town. And they were growing leaps and bounds and they were in the middle of everything. And, and you know, if you were to ask what, what are the top 10 churches in this town, this church would be on that list. But they've lost all of that favor now. But that's still how they perceive themselves. And when you talk about 
making significant changes or you know you critique any of that uh, folks get very indignant like you know we're still that church I mean you can't really see it now but that's really us and one of these days you know <laughs> that kind of conversation happens a lot institutional fear is the next one challenge of institutional fear the challenge of of faithless pragmatism so a lot of these things that we looked at on the individual basis of a transitional pastor, we can find within the congregation. And finally, the challenge of leadership weaknesses of the, of the congregation in general. Um, okay, uh, a lot of this stuff is kind of self, self-explanatory. Let me move forward to uh, page 22. This is an assessment tool that I design particularly to help screen for potential revitalization pastors. But transitional pastors are sort of a subset of revitalization pastors. So I think some of this can apply. Um, and you see there the ideal pastor leader provides three things attitude assurance accountability um, you know these these are all spelled out for you so I'm not inclined to want to read this to you uh, you can read this on your own but if you look on 24 what you'll see is a little grid there the way I use this tool is I ask pastors to do a self-assessment, but you can also ask leaders in a church to do kind of a, as part of a, like a 360 assessment, uh, leaders in a church that are assessing their pastor. Now this is not quite on target for a transitional scenario because the people in the church haven't experienced this transitional pastor yet. But for a self-assessment, it's helpful to look at these things and help determine, is this ministry going to be right for me? Uh, one thing, let me point out a couple of these. Just Like if you look uh, back on page, say, uh, 22, where it says, Champion. The ideal pastor leader serves as a champion. Well, throughout the process, people's intensity will drift. Their commitment level will drift. People get tired. So one of the things that a transitional pastor is going to do is to have to fan the flame. You know, have to ramp things up one more time. Okay, another thing that is, I think is interesting is if you look at the top of 23, this is under the, the ideal pastor leader possesses support. And I've described this as strong devotional and family life to strengthen leading without affirmation. One of the things that I think a transitional pastor will experience 
is this is this necessity to lead without affirmation. You know, you're taking people where they ought to go, not necessarily where they want to go. Okay? And they're they're having to deal with change, sometimes very significant change, which is challenging. And they can look at you as the source of that problem. You know, so this idea of support is uh, devotional life and family life. Sometimes when you are leading people through change, which is almost by definition what transitional pastoring is, uh, you're not really earning points with people at that point. Okay? You're calling them to things that... uh, might make them unhappy, uncomfortable, it's unfamiliar, uh, don't know if this is going to work or not, I wish we had our old pastor back, why did that person leave anyway? You know, there's all kinds of, of subsets to this. So the bottom line is, the transitional pastor is going to be fortified more by his or her relationship with the Lord and relationship with immediate family. If those two things are intact, it greatly enhances the survivability. You ever you guys ever see that show Naked and Afraid on TV? <laughs> it's one of these survival shows where they drop they drop two people on an island somewhere with no food, no water, no clothes, no nothing. And uh, they have to somehow figure out how to survive over a period of time. And uh, if you make it 21 days, you win kind of deal. And uh, a lot of them don't. You know, most of them don't. Uh, it's very, it's, it's legit. I mean, it's real. They're they drop them in these crazy places where they get eaten with insects and they can't find anything to eat and they drink water and get sick. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, my wife loves the show for some reason. But anyway, they have this thing called the survival rating. You know, so-and-so because of, you know, she's an EMT and she does this and she does that. So at the beginning, her, her survival rating is a 6.3. And then, you know, if she makes it to the end, it might go up to a 7.2 or whatever. Or if she has to bail after four days, maybe it drops to a 4.8, right? Survivability rating. Well, well, all I'm saying is that the stronger your devotional life and the stronger your family life, your survival rating as a transitional pastor is going to increase. Okay, because not everyone is going to be happy all the time. This is, there is no honeymoon period for the incoming transitional pastor. Okay, just some of the inner workings of how these dynamics work. Um, okay. I'm kind of skipping over some things that I think are self-evident. Uh, let me take you to 
page 32. Here's another mention of this, uh, these five phases. Remember, aligning perception, aligning vision, etc. Uh, that's just another way of laying that out. But notice on page 33, under each of those phases, there are two guiding questions. Um, you know, aligning perception is about self-discovery, assessment, and analysis. Here are the key questions. What will we discover about ourselves? What will we do in light of what we discover? Um, there's no point in going through assessments if people are not going to take action. Okay? We have found out X, Y, Z, but we're not going to do anything different. So, I always like to just highlight when I'm working with people through an assessment, I try to prompt them up front. Say, listen, the reason we're doing this assessment is not simply to figure out where you are. We want to figure out what kinds of actions need to be taken. All right, aligning vision. Who are we going to be? These are my two uh, vision questions. Number one, how does God want to express himself through this church, in this community, at this time? When, uh, when you help a leadership group sort of pray through this, Father, how do you want to express yourself? through our church, in our community, at this time? That can be a, a very catalytic question for ideas to start coming forward. We, Bob, we need, a, we need three of those assessing your restoration potential forms, if any were left over from the, the other group. Give it to everybody that built. <laughs> so that can be a, that can be I, I've used this question a lot over the years uh, I, I use it as a discernment question I'm trying to hear from God how are you going to use us in this community uh, at this time uh, get a bunch of leaders together have them pray these things individually seek God individually come together and compare notes and, and things will start to bubble up. Now, the second question, what did God mean by that? That is the retrofit. You see, I don't care how much prep work you do on the front end. As you go through... Uh, as you go through the process, you're going to bump into things that you didn't see coming, things that you didn't predict. And so when that happens, you, you want to pause and say, what, is, what does God mean by this? You know, we were headed in this direction. We seem to be led in this direction. But it's not quite panning out like we thought. So, so let, me give you a, let me give you a quick example of that. This church I went to in Phoenix, this was a church that... Uh, you know, we met in middle school for two and a half years. But we knew before we even started, uh, the school district was going to limit us to two years use of its building. So, you know, from day one, you know, we've got 24 months 
to have plan B in place, whatever that's going to be. Well, we were audacious enough to think that if God had, had called us to this community that had this particular circumstance to deal with, then he must have a plan that included somehow our getting into a piece of property and putting a building up. So we started you know, extrapolating from there, okay, uh, we don't have really any money at this point, but if we, if we were gonna buy a piece of property, what is like the smallest piece of property we would be willing to buy uh, to accomplish what we think God might ultimately want to do. So we settled on uh, about a four-acre parcel. And, you know, we did a little bit of research and with, with water retention regulations and whatnot, we kind of figured if we had four acres, we could put a, like a small building, small parking lot, room for water retention, and it, it, it could, you know, we could reach, I don't know, we could seat maybe a couple hundred people, and if you go to two or three or four services, that could, you know, level up into being 800 people or so. Okay. Um, so we started down that path. We brought in an architect. We said, look, we don't actually have a real piece of property, but Let's, let's pretend that we've got four acres of land in this community with its particular regulations and whatnot. What could we do with that? And so he came out with, you know, a plan. He said, well, you know, all things being equal, you ought to be able to build a building about this big with about this many parking spaces and this much water retention and this much access to the street, yada, yada, okay? And so, see, this is part of our vision now. We are envisioning being a four-acre church with a building and a parking lot and a this and a that. Well, uh, as the months wore on and we investigated properties, uh, we weren't finding anything that was quite right. Uh, so a gentleman joined our church who was a land developer, knew all the ins and outs of how all these things work. So he's made a few calls and checked into this and that and the other thing. Well, bottom line was, we ended up buying a 14 and a half acre piece of land. Nine and a half acres of which was buildable. Okay, so... You know, what does God mean by this? Answer. Well, the, 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 final, the final development of this church is going to require nine and a half acres. Now, I knew good and well, I would never see that. I knew I wouldn't be at this church that long. But, you know, we went back to this architect and said, hey, the rules have changed. Show us what we could do with nine and a half buildable acres. And he sketched all that out. Well, you know, what you're seeing here is this vision is becoming visible. And when you sit down with people to talk to them about these things, you can say to them, hey, this is where we were. 
Now, this is kind of crazy. See, on one hand, we don't have any money. We don't have very many people. But we're already talking about how God's moving us from being a projected four-acre church to being a projected nine-and-a-half-acre church. Okay? But it was just that recognition that God doesn't provide resources to not be used. So I'm still convinced that somewhere in the life of this church, they're going to fully develop out that nine and a half acres. But what, what, what that would do for us is, you know, when people would see that, they'd start to get excited. Because they'd realize that we're just not kidding with us. We are really believing these things. So that's just one example. All right, when it comes to strategy, you know, how, here's the, here are the big questions. How do we make contact with those we are trying to reach? Contact is the strategic priority. Lots and lots of churches fail to make contact. What they do is they have worship services and activities and events, and they hope that people come. Hoping that people come is not making contact. Okay. Secondly, how will we develop those we are trying to reach once we've made contact? You see how even with just these simple questions, we're beginning to see vision start to pile up. Structure. What are the criteria for decision-making and resource allocation? Those, to me, are the two big structural questions. Um, decision-making and resource allocation are the stuff of church leadership. You know, uh, bottom line, how do decisions get made? How do resources get spent? When you've, when you've got that in alignment with the strategies that are in alignment with the vision, you know, now you're streamlining, you're focusing your church, and you're, you're really making progress. And then finally, people. How will we get people involved? And on whom does the future depend? Now, this is a really tricky question. We'll get people involved by constantly promoting the vision and assimilating into that vision people who are ready for it. The mistake that that folks can make sometimes is feeling like we need to pour ourselves into the congregation until everybody gets it. And once everyone's on board, then we can start reaching into the community. But the truth is, uh, you're not going to get everybody on board. So what you do is you, you go with whoever's ready and you start reaching the community. And as you reach the community, other people get on board. Now, this question on whom does the future depend? The tendency is to think somehow that the future is 100% dependent on what the existing congregation does. But it's not. The existing congregation is in part the past of the church, in part the present of the church, and has the potential to be part of the future of the church. But the real future of the church is reaching people in the community. See, because everybody who's with you now will one day not be with you. They're going to move away. They're going to pass away. Some of them are going to just go away. 
But everybody leaves sooner or later. So the way you ensure that a church has a future, that there is a future for a new pastor to step into, is you begin to set this, establish this culture of reaching new people. All righty, we're coming down the home stretch here now. I'm going to share a couple of tools with you, then we'll be done. If you look on 34, let me move this on up. We had some stuff kind of out of order. And uh, so rather than try to reshuffle, I just ignored it. But I will bring it up now. Let me fast forward. I think I'm getting somewhere. Here we go. Page 34. All right, the, the, the primary strategic tool that we use with the Go Center it's called the Great Commission Matrix. And uh, I'm going to give you an overview of the matrix on 34 and 35, and then we're going to zero in on the next page to the real strategic application. Uh, when you're working with a church through transition, you, you want to be working with them on a spiritual level, and on a strategic level. You want to marry those two together. Okay, we refer to this as spiritual renewal with strategic initiative. Now what you see in this matrix is the, the vertical axis is spiritual renewal. You know, high spiritual renewal at the top, uh, low spiritual renewal at the bottom. Uh, horizontally, strategic initiative, a low commitment to strategic initiative to a high commitment commitment to strategic initiative. Okay, so looking at these four quadrants, here's what you get. Quadrant one, we've got a high commitment to spiritual renewal, but a low commitment to strategic initiative. What's the result? Minimalization. Okay, it's wonderful to have a high commitment to spiritual renewal, but if you don't put something strategic to go alongside it, it just ends up basically being a, a spiritual pep rally where everybody gets warm fuzzies and goosebumps, but nothing changes. Your ministry is minimized. Okay, number three, low commitment to strategic initiative, low commitment to spiritual renewal. What do you get? Marginalization. Uh, this is a church that's invisible to the community. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have an impact. It might as well not be there from a community standpoint. Okay? Quadrant four, high commitment to strategic initiative, low commitment to spiritual renewal. What do you get? Manipulation. There are lots of churches out there these days that are just chasing after whatever the methodology du jour happens to be. You know, back in the day when the seeker model first hit the scene, everybody wanted to be a Willow Creek or a Saddleback. 
Okay, so they all chased after the trappings of those ministries. You know, if you're after Willow Creek, you're going after the, the, the big three. Topical sermons, contemporary music, and drama. You know, if you're after Saddleback, uh, you've got posters of baseball diamonds all over your church. Okay, because that was the layout of Rick Warren's strategy. Get the first base, second base, third base. Okay, now I'm all for models. The problem is the success of Willow Creek and the success of Saddleback wasn't in those models. Okay, those were just methodologies. Here's an example. I attended Willow Creek in January of um, 1985 when they were just a tiny little church of about 3,000. Okay. They had the contemporary music. They had the drama sketch. They had the, you know, topical message delivered by a really gifted communicator. But what impressed me about Willow Creek was none of that. I'm sitting there, and I get the, the bulletin. They call it a program. And I'm flipping through the program. And it says, join us next month on Wednesday nights for our new community service. Our special speakers uh, in February will be John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. Like, really? I mean, these are... These are the guys you're bringing in for your Wednesday night, more insider kind of training. Small groups ministry galore. Okay, so what I discovered is that most of these churches, back then I was, I was training church planters. And we would do like eight of these events a year, training planters. And we could have as many as 20 or 30 church planting projects show up for training. And the vast majority of them would say, we're doing a willow. We're doing a saddleback. But they weren't really. They were doing what I would call a pseudo Willow Creek. They're just skimming the surface, taking the methodology, but not really the depth. Okay, so you can manipulate, you can draw a crowd, but where's the authenticity with no spiritual renewal? In, 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 in a sense, it's not really that they intend to ignore the spiritual. They just assume that the spiritual is there, that it doesn't need to be tended to. You know, we're a church. We're godly people. We were called to ministry. We pray. Bible's involved. So, hey, that's covered. The difference maker is in the technique. Okay? Now, that brings us, of course, to number two, where the action really is. High commitment to spiritual renewal. High commitment to strategic initiative. What do you get? Multiplication. Now, look on 35, and uh, what you'll see there is that we've, we've set something inside of quadrant two. We've set a grid inside of quadrant two. And that grid is what we're now going to refer to as the Great Commission Matrix. Okay, I wanted you to see all four quadrants so you could just kind of understand that it is a matrix. But from this point on, we're going to zoom in to quadrant two. Now, you'll, you'll see there those three letters from the bottom up, OED, 
That stands for Outreach, Evangelism, and Discipleship. Now notice at the bottom left of that page, you see that I have given Outreach, Evangelism, and Discipleship the tag Movements. I, I am setting them aside from programming. In other words, we don't have an evangelism program. We have an evangelism movement. We have an outreach movement, a discipleship movement. Well, what does it mean to have a movement? It means that that, that element is going to run like a thread through every ministry of the church. It's not an isolated ministry to itself. You know, you mentioned St. Giles. When I was at St. Giles back in the 70s, 80s, we had about 1,200 members. And we had an evangelism team. I was on the team. We had 15 on the evangelism team. See, that's what you get when evangelism is a program. Church of 1,200, 15 on the evangelism team. See, my theory is that if you have a church of 1,200, you should have 1,200 on the evangelism team. And you get there by making evangelism pervasive. Okay? So, here's how that works. If you look at 36, first, let's, let's think about perspective at the very top. The question is going to shift. The question is not going to be, how do we minister to our congregation? Okay? The question is going to be, oh, that's not here. How do we minister through our congregation to reach the lost community? Now, that tiny little prepositional shift is going to change everything. You know, we're not going to pour ourselves just into our congregation as if it's a cul-de-sac. We are going to use the congregation like an intersection and work through the congregation to reach into a community. How do you do that? Minister, why? I don't know why. <laughs> We needed one more space, I guess, for that to work, huh? All right, here's how this works. You, you have a, a vertical axis from the bottom up, outreach, evangelism, discipleship. Now, here's a couple of definitions for you. Outreach, outreach is when people in the church connect with people outside of the church to build sustainable relationships. So outreach is all about building sustainable relationships. People with whom we connect time and time and time and time again. Okay? Evangelism, on the other hand, is when people who are outside of the Christian faith are connected to a crystal clear presentation of the gospel. Without gospel clarity evangelism doesn't happen. Now, I make this point so deliberately to demonstrate that outreach and evangelism, the way we use those words, are not synonymous. 
And you can't simply get people to Jesus with outreach. Outreach is where the relationship is formed horizontally. Evangelism is when the gospel is delivered. And then, of course, discipleship uh, is how you mature people in their faith once they have crossed that line into faith. Now, going across the, the horizontal axis, ministry area one, two, three, four, these just represent the various ministries of the church. Now, the premise here, the premise is that we are going to create strategies in every ministry area to do three things, outreach, evangelism, and discipleship. Okay, so for example, let's say that ministry area number four is youth ministry. All right, what are we going to do with that? Um, the question is not, how do we minister to the youth of the community? The question is, how do we minister th through, I'm sorry, youth of the congregation. It's how do we minister through the youth of the congregation to reach the youth of the community? So we're going to drop down to outreach. The leaders of youth ministry are going to craft a few strategies for how to make that ongoing contact, how to reach out to the teenagers of the community through youth of the congregation. Then we come up. We're going to be creating strategies for how we're going to deliver the gospel to teenagers who respond to our outreach efforts. Then we move up and develop a couple of discipling strategies for how we're going to develop teenagers that come through evangelism who came in through outreach. Now the idea, you see, is that every ministry area of the church is operating through this grid. So, let me run to the back here for a second. I tell you what, this may be, this will be the last thing we do today. Um, the way churches tend to operate is they have Sunday morning, Sunday morning services. And when, when we prompt our people to invite people to church, typically what we're saying is, uh, what they're doing is they'll invite people to Sunday. You know, come to worship. So the idea here is people come, assuming they come, all right? People enter through this front door, which is often the only front door of a church. And if they connect in a meaningful way, they hang around, they might trickle down to the departmental levels of the church. Children, youth, men's ministry, small groups, etc., etc. And all of these tend to be in reach in nature. Okay? Well, what we're saying is, what if every ministry area of the church developed its own outreach, its own evangelism, its own discipleship? So not only do we sort of pry the church open to having multiple front doors. But they're not passive. They're not front doors waiting to be open. They're front doors that are actually going out. And so you, you greatly increase 
the opportunity for the church's ministry to be making contact with people out in the community. Now let me pause here and see. I know it's late in the day. But if anyone has a brain cell left and has a question about this, now would be the time. Is this making sense to you? Is this all? Sense to you. Can you uh, I, I've seen this before with uh, uh, Bill Raich once he did uh, the Go uh-huh. Arrow Church. Uh, can you tell me again the difference? I, going the arrow going up is obviously you do outreach, which then leads to evangelism, which then leads to discipleship. What about the arrows going down? The arrows going down represent that each ministry area is going out into the community. Okay. So if you're trying to start this in a church that's already established, you have a youth ministry. Would you? Uh, begin working first in the discipleship areas to say we're making disciples, but part of making disciples is that we're also going out to share the gospel, so you're working down as well. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a holistic thing. Um, Does that make sense? I'll 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 break this out in a couple of ways. One thing is just this, you know, kind of like warning, warning, warning. Don't attempt this in every ministry area all at once at the beginning. You know, just don't think you can go from whatever the norm is to this in every area all at once. Select one or two ministry areas that seem either most likely to be successful with this or just better positioned for it. Get one or two of them going and then add another one, add another one over time. Now, the... The way that I have seen this launched most effectively is to have a, have a training session where you bring together the folks that lead and serve in all, all of the, the, those ministry areas. Um, not long ago, well, uh, Faith Church in... Uh, is it is it is it Kings Kingstown, Virginia, Alexandria? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Faith Church. Uh, they've gone through this in a very aggressive way. So, uh, with the Geo One material, what we do is we have a church form a vision team, and that vision team, in part, begins to think through how do we launch this. Okay, which which. Which uh, ministry areas do we start with? That kind of thing. So what we did with Faith Church is something that that I I recommend. We, uh, like six months after the initial training, we took a Saturday and we brought together the leaders and people that serve. And I think they selected seven ministry areas, which... My recommendation on the front end of that would probably say that's a little too many, but they wanted to do it that way. Okay, fine. And it, it, it seemed to be working. So what we did was we have the vision team plus those people from those seven ministry areas. We come together on a Saturday. Um, I did about a 90-minute uh reiteration 
of the training about life cycle and the Great Commission Matrix. And then we, we gave each of these teams, you know, it's positioned at a separate table. We gave them about 90 minutes to work through from the bottom up. In, you know, it's like, you know, take your column, work on your ministry area, coming up with a couple, three outreach strategies, yada, 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 come on up. And so, uh, and that was, a, that was a pretty extended time. Now, the, the value of doing this as a group is that the, the group dynamic is a helpful factor. There was a lot of chatter in the room, a lot of energy in the room. And, uh, you know, the vision team had, had divvied themselves up to sit in with different tables. I was kind of the roving, uh, you know, person going from table to table. So what are you guys talking about here? What, you know, so 90 minutes of this. And then what we did was we had each, each table send a spokesperson to the front. And we gave that person about three minutes to share what did your ministry come up with. And it was really, it was really cool the way it played out. The first person comes up and makes this spiel. Well, we're going to do blah, 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 and here's how. And, and it, was really, it was really interesting to see what they had come up with. So when, when he was done... Uh, you know, and he, he holds the mic down. Well, the place erupts in applause. Like, great, yeah. So that sort of set the tone for all the other presentations. So we're listening to group after group after group come up. Well, here's what we're going to do in the way of outreach. Here's what we're going to do in the way of evangelism. And here's our plan for discipling. And, you know, we've already acknowledged that not all of this is going to work. And you're going to be adapting over time. But, but what are you going to do to, to get started? And, uh, and then at the end, we had a, a, an extended time of prayer. And so, uh, you know, that whole group of people, it was seven teams worth of people plus the vision team. There must have been, there must have been like 70 or 80 people there. And it was, uh, I, I love that setting for, for moving this further down the line. But, uh, you know, that's kind of how you get this started. And all it takes is for one ministry to start seeing some results. And as they share that with other people, then they, you know, get excited about their area. So, you know, one by one by one, you want to you move this throughout the areas of the church. So the point here is that we're not going to treat outreach, evangelism, and discipleship as just one more entry in a list of programs. It's going to be something that's going to be pervasive, cutting through all the programs. So, the only other thing here in your book is about the leadership ladder. Um, it, there's a lot to that. To, to do it right, we'd be here far longer than I think I want to be, and I think you want to be. But uh, the good news is that that material is all available in both uh, book and workbook form. If you're really interested in that further, uh, you can get in touch with me. We can talk about that at another time. But uh, What's the name of the book? The Leadership Ladder. It comes. 
Yeah, it comes, that's the name. Yeah, in fact. Uh, if that's the name of the book, that's what I was trying to figure out. Yeah, this one is, uh, let me uh, show you what it is. You know, from a from the standpoint of a transitional pastorate, this would be an excellent tool to work through with the session during your during your transitional pastoral tenure. So it's a book accompanied by a workbook. They work in tandem, and uh, you can get them directly from me, or you can order them from ChurchSmart.com. And if you want to take a peek at these today, fine. Uh, and you got the you got the the assessing your restoration potential. Okay. So that's kind of it, guys. <laughs>